Today is January 29th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki Naganago Mekoche Chestokom Aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border are the Siksika, Gunai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley Shinnekee Bears Paw Nations of the Stony Nations, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nations, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honour the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name. I was born in Calgary, or in Blackfoot Mokinstis, as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene, or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellowknives Dene. My father is so Canadian, I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having Indian Act and Post status. My identity and lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I am a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Clinchotine in the Hay in Satu, uh, meaning Many Horse Town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest and honoring your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share what I know as I walk down my red road. Because apparently my life and content are so damn triggering, if you are experiencing emotional distress after anything we talk about today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll-free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, you can also text at hopeforwellness.ca for uh, more related help on missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit. Call 1-844-413-6649. These are national toll-free 24-7 crisis lines that are meant to help people in, with the emotional assistance related to missing or murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, as well as Indian residential schools and Indigenous, in, I guess, in general. Uh, the uh, QT Bimpok community here in Mokinstis or in Blackfoot or YYC in the airport code created a, a, a BIMHOC mental health YYC WordPress document as well. And um, so I want to help racialize people uh, with resources that are more appropriate as opposed to what is out there for non-Indigenous, which are distress center lines and usually a functioning 211. But if you don't have, if you're non-Indigenous and you don't have a functioning 211, you can also try a 24 Seven toll-free line at 1-833-456-4566. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for already showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. 
To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments or your questions. And I also have a YouTube channel now where you can subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. So today I am really lucky to have somebody that um, I think is probably one of the most important people in Alberta politics um, and especially in Indigenous politics. So I want to welcome Latasha and Latasha, I'll let you introduce yourself in your way. Thank you, Michelle. It's an honor to share this space with you, even if it's in a virtual setting. Um, so, Oki Nisokwa, Nisto Anasta Matomoko Motsaki, Nin Anasta, Onastam, Nixist Anasta, Saksi Sanaki, Nax Anasta, Agapi Ki Napiaki, and my Mushim and Kokum are Willie and Shirley Oje. Um, thank you, Michelle, for having me. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I my English name is Latasha Kafro. My Blackfoot traditional name is First Steels Woman. Um, I come from the Blood Reserve, which is a member of the Six Gate to Be, or the Blackfoot Confederacy. Um, and like I said, I'm really happy to be on the show today. It's such an honor. Um, there's been lots of great, um, great people who have spoken on the show before me. So it's, 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 it's an honor to be in this position today. Oh, well, and I think the reason why it's like I, I was saying to you, normally I put it out on, I don't know, Monday, Tuesday, whatever, but we're, we're going to try to put this one out as soon as possible, because to me, it's an emergency. It's an emergency what's happening. And I really feel you're our leader in this area, because one, you are the original Blackfoot that actually live here, but two, uh, the politics of today, and I, I knew this was coming because it's Kenny and conservative voters, but do you want to talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing since November? Yeah, so that's a big, long, funny story, not in a ha-ha kind of way, but in a grand scheme of things. Um, it's been a wild ride since November, um, and I will tell you why. So back in November, um, interestingly enough, I was sitting one morning drinking my coffee, braiding my son's hair, getting him out the door. And there was the quickest snippet on the news that said, you know, new coal mine developments coming to the area. And that was it. And it was a flash and it was gone. And it was like coal. Right? What? Like, <laughs> what is like, I've never seen a coal mine and was like, you know, out of sight, out of mind, went about my day. Um, just so happened the next day I was in a team meeting. Um, I work at Mount Royal University right now and I was in a team meeting and a good friend of mine in there, um, Walter had brought up the idea of coal again. And he was talking about coal and talking about the Grassy Mountain Coal Project and was being like, did you know that these coal projects are coming to the area and it makes no environmental you know, sense, it's all this, and I was like, wait, what? And he's explaining a little bit more about the location of these mines. And I was like, that's impossible. Like one, you know, there's no way that we could not know about this just as, as Blackfoot, you know, as, as general Albertans, there's no way that we could not know about these incoming coal mines. And he's like, oh, and I was like, and, and also given the location where it's at, how close in proximity it is to the Begunny First Nation and the Blood Tribe, like on reserve lands, I was like, there's no way that I would not kind of know about this. I would have heard about it somewhere. Like, as far as I know, there's no referendum that has been done. There was no information provided in the communities. And then, you know, my friend Walter, he was like, oh, well, I was on the website for Riversdale Resources and here's the letter of endorsement from your <laughs> band um, and all the bands in Treaty 7. And I mean, quite honestly, I was so taken aback and so distraught because I was like, 
what is going on here and felt like the world was just kind of crumbling all in that moment, right? Dove into this big space of being like, what is open pit coal mining for one? What, what is it? Um, how did these letters of endorsement come to be? How did this project come to be? How does everything piece together? And as I started to research into that, I mean, it, it was taking a toll emotionally because it was like, man, like these areas of land, I've, I've been on them. I grew up in them. I, you know, swam in the Old Man River as a kid. My family lives along it. I've been up to places um, like Nafi's Playground. Um, it's known by white guys as Livingston Gap, um, which is, a you know, a really significant place for Blackfoot people. I've been up in the headwaters of the Old Man River. I've seen the beauty of these landscapes. I've heard the stories of where our people come to be and how closely they're connected to these places. And it was just all crashing together so quickly and being like coal and mountains getting blown up and had spent a lot of time kind of blind calling people anybody who might have information I started you know going down the deep hole of google search and figuring out who was saying what and quickly came to realize that it wasn't just one coal mine that all of a sudden there is like a slew of 10 coal mines led by four different Australian um, owned mining companies that there was the 1976 coal policy and then there was the grassy mountain and all of these different things. So had like I said, blind called a lot of people and spent weeks just kind of doing a knowledge grab, trying to figure out and make sense of what was going on. And, you know, very grateful to the ladies at um, CPA Southern Alberta who, you know, answered my call and were like, oh, hey, like, let, you know, let's, yes, let's meet, let's talk about what's going on. You know, very grateful to some of the other groups that have been working on this for years and have been screaming into the wind, um, trying to get people aware of what's happening. And, you know, they were, were gracious enough to share information with me and have been, you know, I think a really good tale of allyship in lots of this is people, when I kind of came into the conversation, you know, admittingly quite late in the game in November there, um, were very open in arms being like, yes, like, let's protect our mountains. And yes, we're so receptive and learning being like, what is the First Nations perspective on this and the Blackfoot perspective? Um, because we recognize this is a crucial part of all of our identity, these mountains that we see every morning. Um, so that's where I'm at <laughs> yeah. and I'm happy to tell a little bit more about the difference between the two projects. If yeah, I think something really important that I came across was a CBC video that was talking about like the phasing of the coal mines that burn for electricity versus the coal that they're mining here for metal. So maybe that might be something too. Like for me, that was like a new revelation that I learned re very recently. I'm like, I, I didn't realize that we were, we had different types of coal that we were mining and that BC's already been doing it. Yeah, so the reason that we don't quite know much about coal in Alberta is because it's something um, that we haven't seen in a long time. Lots of the coal mines that are around um, were either in thermal coal and are located a little bit more north than us here in Calgary, um, you know, and, and those are their large atrocities as well, right? But it's been kept quite quiet from us. 
And part of that, the reason we haven't heard lots about coal is because since the 70s, there was a coal policy in place, better known as the 1976 coal policy that was introduced under the Lougheed government. Um, and that policy was put in place to protect different um, areas of land from resource extraction. It was a policy well ahead of its time that really valued um, the water protection, that valued, you know, let's do extraction in sustainable ways if we do have to do extraction and recognize the destruction and threat of open pit coal mining and that type of extraction in these really sensitive areas along the Rocky Mountains. So it categorized um, the, the Rocky Mountains, the entirety of the slopes there into four different land categories, category one, two, three, and four. Category one is where most of our provincial and federal national parks are. So it's like no coal exploration is allowed to be done there, no mining, no open pit mining. Category two um, was protected as well from open pit coal mining and um, like very little amount of exploration could be done, but um, there was all different kinds of regulation. So it pretty much was prohibited anyways. So those are two of kind of our most um, sensitive areas of land. Then in category three, same thing, exploration could happen under very um, restrictive um, regulations and stuff like that. And then category four, again, was seen as like not as environmentally sensitive. So coal mines could happen, but had to follow all of the you know regulations and stuff that were in place. So we haven't seen coal mining for quite a while because of the, the strides that that government had taken to protect these areas of land. Yeah. Um, and as part of the creation of that policy, it was years of consultation that went into that with stakeholders, including First Nations, including you know the general public, landowners, municipalities. Um, it was, like I said, a really, it was something way ahead of its time um, in terms of land and environmental protection and engagement of everybody in the area. Yeah. And so that policy, like I said, is kind of why we don't see coal. And that's why it's a little bit of a surprise being like coal. And and that really was um, the type of coal that is in the southern slopes or the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains is, um, like you said, met coal or coking coal, which is coal um, used to create steel. Um, it burns at a lot higher temperature than thermal coal and thermal coal is used to like power homes and electricity, all that kind of stuff. But this coal burns a lot higher um, and is actually re results in more greenhouse gas emissions, all that kind of stuff. So it's just not a good deal all around. It's the um, worst. <laughs> it's the worst. Um, interestingly enough, you know, there's all these different articles going out saying, you know, Canada's phasing out coal um are like we're we're not going to be we're moving away from thermal coal right um which is true we're we're scheduled to um be off thermal coal by 2030 i believe and alberta is actually ahead of the game and we're supposedly going to have thermal coal phased out by 2023 yeah but i was gonna don't say tell you years. is that we're still mining coal so even though we're not using it, we're still mining it and sending it to other places of the world so that they can, you know, it, it's it's taking all that pollution and just putting it somewhere else and being like, we're cool, we did our part, um, which is kind of contradicting itself. And then, yeah, so that's thermal coal, met coal is something else. And that's the coal mines that are opening up now, like you said, are insanely destructive, <laughs> results in more greenhouse gases um, and literally results results in mountains being blown up <laughs> yeah and those are our grandfathers 
They most definitely are. And like I said, the areas of land that are under threat are all along the Crow's Nest Pass area right now. So lots of where these new proposed developments are, are in, um, I don't know if you've ever driven out to the Crow's Nest Pass near Blairmore area, um, all along there, like I said, in some of these quite amazing landscapes. Um, and it, it's really, the more you look into it, the more you'll realize exactly what's at stake, right? There's water quality and water quantity. There's species at risk. There's general wildlife who also need protection. Um, there's there's all of the human life that depends on the water all the way downstream. You know, the Old Man River goes right into the Hudson's Bay. So everybody from here all the way down is at risk here. Um, then there's the the cultural and spiritual side of things as Nitsitsubi, right? Like you said before, this is where we come from. These are the lands in which our language, our culture, our identity is born out of. <laughs> and when we blow up these these mountains and when we have large land destruction like this, it it is a direct attack on who we are as Nitsitsubi. It's an attack on our language. It's a an attack on our culture, it's an attack on who we are, and a very violent attack. Um, and that's, you know, that's what's happening here. And I think, you know, there's, there's all kinds of different people in the game right now, you know, trying to protect their hiking trails, trying to protect their recreational use. And I'm like, that, that's great. And I'm really glad that, you know, you have these types of connection to the land. Um, but also sitting here being like, even just speaking about it, I'm like, it just makes my heart ache and it just this idea that my grandchildren and my children won't be able to walk on the same lands that their ancestors have since time immemorial it it breaks my heart no um, as because... it should yeah sorry i don't mean to interrupt i just don't think that people understand like your rights as an like an inherent blackfoot woman in your territory um they don't understand treaty they don't understand this attack is quite way bigger than a, you know hiking trails and and don't get me wrong we need our allies and we need them to understand but they they don't understand how they haven't been fulfilling their their treaty rights anyway and how this attack is on our inherent rights on you know nationally globally this is a fight for from the united Nations declaration of rights of indigenous people this goes against the trc calls to action this goes against the rcap recommendations this is um, we just finished this inquiry on violence against Indigenous women, girls, and two spirit. This is more violence. Like it's, it's the exact opposite of every direction that we need to be going through. Most definitely, and I think like those ties between land destruction and resource extraction and things like MMIW and language loss and youth suicide, these things can all be so easily tied to harmful resource extraction, such as open pit coal mining. Right, some of the um, initial resources that we put out under the Nitsitsibi Water Protectors page, we're talking about that, like the concerns of safety of our First Nations women. You know, we have two reserves that will be in really close proximity. Um, in order for these coal mines to be up and operating, it's going to require man camps, right? So now we're blowing up mountains, we're bringing in a large population of transient males to an area. Um, you know, and that's going to result in in high safety risks of our young women of the area, our young First Nations in the area, young First Nations women in the area who are already at risk, right? This is, we have seen these things in places like the um, 
oil and gas camps up in the north, right? We have seen this time and time again across Canada. I It makes no sense to me why we would do this so close. And the people that are at risk are, I'm our cousins, are my family, right? The, the members of the Blackfoot Confederacy and all of those young First Nations women in the area, I, you know, I, I fear for them should these projects be approved. Um, and that's what's missing from lots of these conversations, right? It's, it will have a ripple and snowball effect on so many other places. Yes, 100%. No, I, and I'm, that's why I'm grateful that you're here. And I, I hope that you continue to come back and tell us. Um, I, as I was saying to you before we even got started, I feel like every day there's a new development in the story and that people are so unaware of. And then in a week from now, it could be like we're having even more conversations. But it's been interesting seeing the country stars kind of step up for this one. Um, they keep talking about Terry Clark and, and Paul Brandt and um, Cor Blunt, but it was actually Katie Lang. I follow Katie Lang more than I do them. So it was her that really, I was happy to see her, you know, put that up there. And I don't know if you know, she's a BB. If you wiki her, she's a BB. So her mother was a BB. And so I, like, I don't know how connected to her roots she is, but she's Blackfoot. And I'm really shocked. Well, one, she's like the open country lesbian of, of Alberta, but two, she's actually part Indigenous, part, part Blackfoot. So I'm really surprised that the CBC would silence her voice so much anyway. Um, so like, this has actually united the Cowboys and the Indians. I haven't seen that in a long time. Thanks, UCP. <laughs> you know, right? I'm like, I think that what whatever is happening right now, right? Like it, it part of it, yes, I'm super thrilled to see the unification from across these different demographics that we have never seen before, right? Like this unification on land protection and mountain protection and water protection. This, this is quite unheard of, especially in Alberta, right? For all of our interests to be aligned on something, you know, from, <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, and at the same time, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, if settlers and the Canadian government and federal government could just honor the damn treaties like they agreed to do back in 1877, we would not be in this mess, yeah. right? When we signed that treaty, we signed on to protecting and stewarding the lands together to share the resources as Indigenous and non-Indigenous people of this land. From a Blackfoot perspective, those treaties were so much more than what was written down um, by the white guys that sat there with their template, and they knew that they were signing into something much larger. Mm -hmm. Right. So when those treaties were signed, it was signed to protect the mountains. It was signed to protect the wildlife. It was signed to protect all peoples and ensure all of our prosperable futures. And that's what was in those treaties. And so if they could just honor those treaties, we wouldn't be sitting here saying protect our mountains. We wouldn't be sitting here saying don't pollute the water. It would already be protected. These yes. coal policies like the 1976 coal policy, it wouldn't have taken you know, a hundred years for something like that to be existed because that was already existing in the treaty. They just didn't want to honor it or acknowledge it as as something real. And they don't want to honor those nation to nation agreements that we made um, back then. 
You know, and for our people, it was always under ceremony. So these aren't just, you know, legal documents and, and you know, having that conversation of our inherent rights, but it's also a spiritual covenant. Like we, we had ceremony. This is something that we knew we were passing on to our ancestors or passing on to our, the next generation of ancestors that are coming. You know, and, and that's the whole thing. You have children. I have a child. I, I'm concerned what this world is going to look like. And I can't even believe we have to have this conversation because doesn't clean drinking water matter to everybody? Um, oh, and one other group of demographic I did not expect to come into this, beer companies. There was a beer company down down the river and they were like, hey, if you guys do this, we won't have clean beer. And I'm like, the, you know, this is going to be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back where it's going to be like, you can't have good beer. Maybe that will be the reason why they don't allow this to go forward. I don't know, but. <laughs> <laughs> I know, like that I'm, I'm all for everybody taking action. And I think that's such an interesting space, right? And like, it, you know, beer and and also knowing the history of how alcohol has ravish First Nations communities, right? And now we're putting mountains on beer cans and I'm like, okay, um, like let's let's all take a little bit of a step back side. I, I don't even know here because there's so many things that where I'm just like, man, I can't even start to unpack that today. Um, no. You know, and nor is it my job to unpack that for you, but you know, understanding the complexities of what this is, right? That it's, it is so much more and it really is, like you said before, a vicious attack on First Nations. We yeah. know that when these types of things happen, it results in lives lost. Um, one of the things that I was going to start looking into this is this. So Jason Kenney, um, you have to understand, I really dislike Stephen Harper and the Harper government. And I know they put forward FIPA and I know that colonial governments that were, you know, and partners with get to have ri ridiculous unrestricted laws that allow basically the destruction of the land, exploitation of the land and killing of indigenous people globally. So we have an Australian companies, we have China involved and we have FIPA and we have Jason Kenney, who was a part of Harper's team, who's now in charge of the province. So like I see that there actually probably are a lot of federal ramifications through China's FIPA agreement as well. Has anybody really unpacked any of that as far as you know? Because I kind of see that that's something that I'm going to have to start looking into. As far as I know, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's totally fair. Um, I, I think that bigger picture that we know, you know, these are our inherent rights right and that we have treaty with animals and with the environment in a way that non-indigenous can't understand and even as an indigenous person i'm constantly unpacking my people are where um uranium is so between that and the diamonds um our water was was um exploited and, and poisoned as a result and uh, so of course there's conversations about that but because of nagasaki and hiroshima the Dene up north actually have a, a spiritual covenant now to always honor where that nuclear energy comes from and the waste comes from and how that comes from our area. And we had a lot of Dene die mining that because, of course, there were no safety standards when we were doing it. And Canada has never really taken responsibility for any of that. So, um, you know, 
it, there's so much to talk about and unpack when it comes to what our inherent rights are and how our relationship to the land. I mean, ultimately, if this um, mined coal ends up really harming people where it gets shipped to, I mean, like us as Indigenous people know the, those long-term ramifications, let alone the actual drinking water here, let alone the loss of, um, you know, mig migratory paths of different animals that we have treaty with and how it will just destro destroy the land. And I just don't feel like people understand the gravity of the spiritual covenant that we have, not just with the earth, but with um, all the things that live on the earth. Most definitely. And I think, you know, part of the unfortunate reality is that due to colonization, due to residential schools, due to a violent history of, of everything that has gone on in Canada and the violence against Indigenous people, that lots of our own people aren't able to understand the connections that we have to these places and our own responsibilities for protecting and stewarding these, our traditional lands, right? And so, Part of what I've been doing on a community level is, is you know, re reminding people that this is this is who we are, and this is why it's important, even if it, it doesn't seem like that right now. You know, I know that there's multiple crises happening all the time. You know, back in my community, in every First Nations community, um, so you know, now on top of that, we have coal and this threat of all of these different things, right? But the complexity of these issues, it just, like the, it, it is really difficult to try and fight something that seems a little bit far away when there's so many other battles that need to be fight, fought right now, right? Things like the opioid crisis, things like housing, things like, you know, clean water already, right, on reserve, um, things like language revitalization, things like healing from intergenerational trauma those are all immediate things that need to happen right now and it's you know being like you know i'm recognized that i myself sit in a, a place of privilege because i do have the time and capacity and energy to care about something like coal development and have the extra time to commit to research and doing all of these things um and that's not something that's awarded to most first nations right that Unfortunately, lots of us are still in that just survival state, right? Because of these the colonial violence and things like resource extraction that has put us in that state. Yeah, well, and nobody negotiated the Indian Act and yet here it is. And the Indian Act was that systemic racist, um, you know, legislation that has created all of the problems that you've talked about. And then with our leadership, something I've really admired uh, listening to you on different podcasts or in the news is acknowledging that your leadership is doing the best it can do under the Indian Act. Because, you know, I, I know a lot of our people get really angry at leadership for not doing enough for all those things that you'd spoken about. But, you know, I always remind people that the Indian Act doesn't allow them to be, you know, a, a chief um, and council is not the same as a mayor and town council. It's not the same because the imposed governance that was put on our people from the Canadian government doesn't allow them the flexibility to govern. It actually is a, a real control measure and they're allowed to take different roles of the Indian agent that was originally imposed on all our reserves. And that, you know, so there's a conflict already when people call in Indian Act um, democracy because it's not democracy in any capacity and our chief and councils are 
you know, really put into these roles of trying to survive through this, um, you know, imposed legislation. So I've really admired how you've tried to educate non-Indigenous without putting down your leadership on this. And uh, because they, they don't understand treaty, they don't understand Indian Act, they don't understand governance. And I think you and I talked about this earlier where we said, you know, I, I've ran uh, municipally and provincially and you and I, we have to know you know, school trustee level, municipal level, provincial level, federal level, uh, Indian jurisdiction, uh, our inherent laws, our traditions, and, you know, the average person I go door knock, they don't even know, oh, if you're a liberal, get off my lawn, you're just a stupid liberal. And it's like, yeah, I know, I'm a liberal. But, you know, bigger picture here, you don't even know what you're talking about. I, I remember door knocking this one guy, he had a, you know, save the CBC, thing in, on his thing and I'm like oh this might be a potential vote and they were like get off here you stupid liberal and I'm like okay so I left and I was like do you even know what your freaking like politics are like you have any concept but it you know Indian shows up at your door saying she wants to run I guess that's the attitude you give around Calgary but <laughs> so yeah it, it's a luxury I guess is what my roundabout point of, of that joke was is that you know, other people have the luxury of being ignorant. And I feel like our people, we have to fight intergenerational trauma and all and know all these different levels of uh, political understanding. And international, I even excluded international while I'm talking about FIPA and I'm DRIP, I'm still, you know, like it just, it's so natural for us, I feel like to know those jurisdictions as opposed to non-Indigenous. You're trying to explain all of this and try not to put down your chief and council. So I have a lot of admiration for how you're carrying yourself through this. Well, thank you. And like I said, you know, just want to build on that. Our, the chief and council system that has been imposed on First Nations is so far removed from our traditional governance models, right? Each one of our First Nations communities had our own way of governing, of decision making, um, and those were not formed on these hierarchical structures that are in Western society, right? Like, I think about, you know, I was watching different things and there was a post and it was like, I want to know how they use this land and how they used it properly before we came along and showed them how to use it. And I was like, you know what? We used it properly because we weren't blowing up mountains for coal. <laughs> um, we used it properly because we were able to exist in coexistence for thousands of years, <laughs> you know, sustainably. You know what's funny? Ethically. Their religion <laughs> Their religion they imposed on us actually talks about like, you know, heaven where there's all these resources and all of this. And that's like, you are literally in heaven. Then he came here and you wrecked it. Yes. So right, <laughs> and being like this, right. These things wouldn't have been an issue and weren't an issue pre-contact because we had respect. We lived in mutual respect with all of the beings, including human plant, water, mountains, all of these different beings, right? We would have never found ourselves in this kind of predicament because we had, we lived in that mutual respect for one yep. another. Yep. And we, you know, abiding by natural law to uphold the spiritual integrity of all beings in this area. And, you know, so I, I watch some of these comments come in and I'm just like, man, like, uh, uh, <laughs> all right, <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> and so when we go back to to, to chief and council, right, where I'm like, exactly, those those governance systems that we used to have in place, which were so powerful and in line, in alignment and built in the space of natural law and upholding our responsibilities of one another, um, that is not what in place in the chief and council system that's been imposed on First Nations through the Indian Act. Yeah. And you know, to the credit of our elected leaders that sit in those positions, right? They are working as hard as they can. I don't think that anybody, you know, I, I don't know, I can't speak on behalf of them, <laughs> or behalf of them as individuals, right? But I don't think that anybody really 100% endorses coal mining, right? I don't think they can, I think it's, you are doing the best that you can in that moment of time. And when different things arise, you are always faced to make really tough decisions, right? And having to make decisions of what is hopefully going to benefit my people the most or protect them in that moment. And unfortunately that changes so quickly in First Nations community that a decision we made yesterday might not be the best decision tomorrow. Yeah. Right. But knowing that I, my leadership has my best interest at heart. Right. So trusting that at the same time being like, let's say no to coal because as, as, as we move in this space, we're quickly realizing that that's, that's not what um, is needed right now. Right. When we talk about cultural revitalization, when we talk about language, um, we need these places. That's what's going to help get us back. We we see, you know, the TRC, and we see the, you know, the different commitments that government have made to First Nations people and recognizing our rights and all that kind of stuff. Right? We need these landscapes in order to to get back to that. We need our access to. Um, to these places that that hold that knowledge for us that have been holding it for us even though we have been going through all of these other things that knowledge is still there we've just got to get it back and be in that place to to actively listen to what what is being taught to us by the land again a hundred percent oh i'm so grateful you're here i hope that people who are listening like they they understand the the gravity of what's um at stake here because you know, it's not just affecting um, Indigenous, but it's going to affect settlers too. And it's sad that it has to affect settlers for them to care about, you know, uh, in our inherent land rights, our inherent treaty rights. But that's, here we are, here we are, even if it helps them with their beer. So, <laughs> so um, you have a web or a, a Facebook group that I've been trying to promote as well as a Twitter. Um, what are some other ways that we, oh, you're on podcast. I've been trying to share anything that you're on in order to elevate that voice. So is, is there any other way that we should be elevating your voice? Um, well, I, I would, you know, go back and say I'm just one voice. Um, we're working on, I think there's lots of people in the community right now who are, you know, actively working on this in different capacities. Some of them support with Natsitipi water protectors. Um, some are on community. So I think whenever we see these different posts and people speaking up and sharing what they know, like all of that got has got to get out there. Um, I think, you know, while there is this big giant mess and battle and war against coal right now, there's also a lot of beauty happening, you know, silver lining, people are sharing, people are talking, people are remembering why these lands are important and why it's important to protect them. And I think, you know, that's, that's beautiful and powerful in itself. So it's, there's so much going on. And I think, man, <laughs> 
I, like I said, I can't describe the beauty that's in our communities. Um, and yeah, it. <laughs> I know it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And I'm glad that you're not alone. Um, I seen that uh, you were partnering with um, a fellow from Sixica. So you were yeah, saying there are so other voices and I just want to make sure that we're following them basically. Okay, yeah, so our online presence, um, like I said, there's quite a few people that work behind the scenes of Nitsitipi Water Protectors, um, because like I said, I'm I'm not the one, <laughs> one-stop shop for everything related, um, but there's, there's multiple people that have been working on this and the creation of our content, um, you know, multiple community voices, as always, you know, we speak with elders and knowledge keepers in all different places, um, and I think, you know, getting back to that just just working as a community, right? I think there's such a risk of fragmenting ourselves and that's what the colonial government wants us to do. Um, but, you know, recognizing, you know, the, the differences of our people, but recognizing we all stand together as humans, right? Um, and that's, can, that's what's going to be important in this. Can you explain the um, uh, recent statements that did come out from the bands though, saying that they did oppose this, but did support this part? Only because um, I know that's confusing for folks yeah so there's a lot of misinformation when it comes to coal these coal development projects and where first nations fit into all of it um some of the things that yeah let's let's do a little bit of myth busting right now so sure. myth number one myth first one. nations consent to open pit coal mining <laughs> um all right let's dive into the complexities of that. So the Grassy Mountain Coal Project has been years in the making. That is the one that is currently under federal review. So it went through the regulatory review process, which is a years long process. Um, the public hearings were back in November of 2020. The public comment section wrapped up in January, This just a couple of weeks ago, January 15th. Um, and that final report is being written by a joint panel, uh, a joint regulatory panel from both the Alberta and federal government. That report gets wrapped up nice and neatly with some recommendations handed over to Minister Wilkinson. And then he makes his final decision, most likely with the input from the cabinet to whether or not to approve that application. The Grassy Mountain Coal Project is one mine. Um, that is located seven kilometers north of Blairmore. And like I said, was has been years in the making. Um, as part of that, as part of the regulatory process, it does trickle the duty to consult where they you know, map out all potential impacted First Nations groups in the area. Um, they consult with them. So in regards to that project, consultation has been taking place with First Nations as far back as 2013. And in between 2019, yeah, 20, yeah, all throughout 2019, unfortunately, First Nations um, consultation department on behalf of chief and council gave their consent on the Grassy Mountain Coal Project. Um, it is really important to state though that that consent was given without informing and consulting the community. So most people in these communities on a community level, like myself, um, we're not engaged, we're not informed, we're not asked. Um, and so unfortunately that endorsement was provided um, by chief and councils across Treaty 7 on the Grassy Mountain Coal Project. Can I pause you just for a second there? Their legal term of consent is not what the average person with common sense thinks consent is. And I think that that's 
problematic in that like legally oh yeah no we did consent but anybody who's ever had any um you know conversations with anyone with a lawyer or in the justice system knows you know it's almost like um uh backwards speak where it's like no there wasn't any consent and that that's the point uh, point of the indian act and the, the point of chief and counsel being um almost forced to sign off on something where they don't get an opportunity to talk to um, the community. They don't get to talk to elders. They don't get to let everyone know, you know, the complexity of it because they're not even told the complexity because they're not legally obligated from the Canadian government to tell them the complexity of what's happening anyway. Like there's so many levels of, there actually isn't consent there, but legally by Canadians colonial law and that terminology and framing, there was consent and consultation, but it's not, what regular people who just speak English understand consent and consultation to be. Most definitely. So I guess the better wording in this one, what, what Stephen Council provided their endorsement of the project, um, which has been taken as consent in the eyes of the government, <laughs> right? Um, and like you said, that endorsement was provided without, um, without informing and engaging the membership. And so on First Nations communities, um, I'm a member of the Blood Tribe, so I am, we, we are collective rights holders of, of anything. It's not owned by one person. It's not owned by chief and council. It's owned by the nations as a whole. Um, so in large things like this, there should have been consultation on a community level saying, what's up guys? Do you support? Do you oppose? What are your thoughts? You know, what are your concerns? And chief and council should have, you know, collected those and responded and, and included that into this whole process. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. That's the Grassy Mountain Coal Project. Um, and so like you said, yes, unfortunately, Chief and Councils across Treaty 7 gave their endorsement on that project. Where it gets tricky is that, like you said, some of those endorsements and different agreements that were made between the mining company and who, whichever government at the time, right? Um, where it gets tricky is, unfortunately, First Nations were not aware that when they signed on to that one project, they didn't know that there was going to be a slew of other projects behind. And so the provincial government, the UCP government, had was in conversations with these other mining companies. They knew they were going to rescind the policy and did not tell anybody else. So when First Nations signed on, it was like, okay, that's one project. It's way over here. It's not, you know, in the headwaters. It's, you know, still really environmentally destructive, um, but I can see why that decision might have been made that way, right? And so, yeah, that's the Grassy Mountain Coal Project under federal review, um, and that's up to the federal government. So where people need to lobby is on the federal level. And, you know, if you're part of Treaty 7 and your chief and council endorse this project, start calling them. You got to lobby them and say, hey, we, you know, you didn't inform us, you didn't consult us, we want accountability, we want transparency. And we want the will of the membership to be upheld. And if we, you know, if we host a referendum and 51% of our people say, no, we don't support this project, you guys need to revoke that support and figure out how to fight against this project. That's what needs to happen on the grassy front. Then there's the coal policy, <laughs> which we talked a little bit about earlier. And the interesting part with that, um, so those were the statements put out by the Blood Tribe yesterday. One was on the Grassy Mountain Coal Project. Like I said, still endorse that project. It's in category four lands, um, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> then there's the coal policy. 
And I was actually quite pleased with the statement that they put out on the coal policy because they are true. And it's, they, you know, quite openly said they do not want our consent to any projects that would be in formally protected category two lands, which were previously protected under the 1976 coal policy. And so where the confusion comes, like I said, is before the UCP government deleted or rescinded or removed that policy, they were legally required to consult with First Nations, not just in Treaty 7, arguably with all um, First Nations across Alberta um, in, the, in the three different treaty areas, right? So the duty to consult was owed not just with the Blackfoot Confederacy, not just with Treaty 7, um, you know, and the UCP government should have consulted with, you know, landowners in the area, with the general public, with the municipalities. Yeah, they didn't. Um, you want to know who they consulted with? The Coal Association of Canada and awesome. the mining company and the CEOs of the mining companies that are coming in. So people from Montem Resources and Cabin Ridge and that's who they consulted with. And we're like, oh yeah, it's great. Let's throw out this policy. Um, Right. So they secretly in the middle of a pandemic, when everybody was super vulnerable and distracted, they announced on May 15th, right before the long weekend there, that they were going to be rescinding that policy effective June 1st. Didn't consult any, like I said, didn't consult for nation, didn't consult anybody, um, local stakeholders, anything like that, just said, nope, too bad, it's thrown out. Within... And then quite quickly, within like 24, 48 hours, they provided um, um, exploration permits to lots of these additional mining companies to go out on the land and start exploring for coal. And I think the misconception here is that, well, they're not mining, so nothing's happening. That is 100% false. Exploration is resulting in you know, hundreds of kilometers of newly formed roads to be up in these really sensitive areas. Like you said, category two land was classified as really sensitive areas that are crucial to water development and all of these things. Um, and so they're building, they're building roads out there. They're clear cutting trees in these different areas that are um, crucial to endangered species habitats. They are, you know, disrupting the water already by building bridges and stuff like that. Um, and they are they are drilling, they're drilling these large holes as part of coal exploration. So things are already happening up there. People are already disrupting the land. People are already doing all these things. And like I said, that was really secretly done um, without informing anybody. So, and that, like I said, First Nations did not consent to that. No, not, not the community and not First Nations chief and councils. They were not consulted, nobody consented. And the Blood Tribe um, and Siksika Nation actually filed a joint application for a judicial review against the UCP's um, decision to revoke that policy. And what the judicial review is, is they're disputing um, the way that that decision was made, saying that because there was no consultation, the policy should be reinstated. Um, and additional in the statement released by the Blood Tribe, they're saying same thing. We do not um, want any coal mining in these areas um, that were previously protected by the coal policy. So. You know, jumping back to grassy, because grassy mountain was in category four land, it was always permitted for open pit coal mining. Mm -hmm. And so at this stage, it really is apples and oranges. It's two different issues, even though they are both fruit, both related to coal. Yep. Um, and where action needs to happen is different for both. So if we want no coal mining, no met, no met coal mining, um, we've got to 
convince the feds that they should not approve Grassy Mountain. Um, and then we have to lobby the provincial government as a united Alberta and First Nations, you know, get together and lobby the provincial government saying, heck no. Yeah. Put that policy back in place on the grounds that you didn't consult. And, you know, understand, arguably, we need a new policy, an updated policy, one that people can't just come in and throw out whenever they want to. Yeah, no kidding. Holy I can't even thank you enough for um, breaking all of this down for me and for uh, folks that listen. And we get about a thousand downloads an episode is what I last heard. So I'm hoping that, you know, we'll we'll hear or some folks that need to hear and understand this will hear it from you. Um, I know Janice Makokas speaks a lot about treaty rights. So for folks who are listening, who are looking for more resources, and if you don't understand treaty, um, always Google Janice Makokas. Uh, Faye Morning Bull uh, was really strong talking about treaty rights, um, you know, at, at the start of I Don't Know More. So that would be the end of 2012, the 2013. You know, there's tons of information on understanding treaty if you are a person who doesn't understand what we're talking about. Um, but, and for our people, I'm hoping that, you know, there's an understanding that Chief and Council's hands are always tied on these types of projects. But, um, our lawyers for Chiefs and Councils usually end up helping us, but sometimes 20 years after the development is already done and it's not their fault, that's just the legalese system. So it's interesting how, you know, um, consent and consultation work in their favor every time. And then, you know, seems to, oh, the land's completely distracted. Yeah, we can rule in their favor, no biggie. And it, <laughs> I hate this Canada court system, I tell you. <laughs> well, exactly, right? It's set up to get some kind of manufactured consent um, by First Nations. And First Nations are going to continue um, to struggle these battles unless we you know, challenge that underlying system, right? We, we have to remember that Canada is built on this system of oppression and built on the destruction of Indigenous people. Right. And so if we're looking for some kind of justice in this broken political system, we're not going to find it, you know, until until Canada recognizes us as that nation to nation status. Um, right. That those nation to nation agreements signed in treaty, they recognize us as um, and recognize our governing systems. Right. And actually <laughs> recognize the indigenous lands in which they are on and that we should have veto over these projects. Yeah. <laughs> we should have the right to say no to harmful um, extractive resource projects in our traditional lands. No coal mines on Nitsitsipi land. It should be Nitsitsipi consent. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I'm so grateful. Thank you for breaking all of that down. Um, so what, what are next steps for us? Uh, we have to write to our federal uh, jurisdiction right now for the Grassy Mountains part and then uh, provincially, you know, I, I ran provincially so I'm kind of at the point where it's like I know these letters don't mean anything to the UCP unless you're a donor. So for someone like me, I'm going to look into who was donating from the mining companies into these UCP campaigns because that's obviously how they got elected and how it is that uh, they're doing the bidding of uh, mining companies. Any other suggestions that you have for us right now? Yeah, so you can check, um, for anyone listening, you can check out our page. Um, I know letter writing can be a little bit intimidating for people, myself included. Um, so there's a 
couple great um, organizations that I work with who have provided like the one click letter writing um, templates where you you know pop in your name, pop in your email address, and off goes a letter. Um, so there is one set up to a letter writing tool to Minister Wilkinson regarding the Grassy Mountain project. There is another letter writing tool set up. Um, where you can find the links on our page as well that goes to Minister Wilkinson, it goes to your MLA, it goes to the Minister of Environment and Parks in Alberta, um, and that's regarding the 1976 coal policy. And then, like I said, if you are First Nations, don't forget to write your chief and councils, email them, they're all available on their nation websites, phone them. If that's your cousin, if that's your brother, if that's your auntie that's on council, phone them and demand some answers. <laughs> right Requ you know request of them to to consider community voices we can't forget our tribal government here because we need to support them in this process as well we need to remind them where our values are, are as a community so that we can all stand unified in this in this fight here because if we keep you know butting heads with chief and council as the community and chief and council that's what the government wants us to do they want us to fight within ourselves um, and that's why they set up these things so that, you know, there's a huge disconnect between leadership and the community, right? So that, that whenever a project like this comes up, they can be like, oh, they're fighting again, let's let them fight um, and take themselves out. That's not what we need to do here. So let's everybody get on the same page. <laughs> let's everybody, you know, work together um, with allies, First Nations. Um, this is we're, we're in for a long call here with this with this war on coal. Um, it's not a sprint, <laughs> it's a marathon. <laughs> and like you said, reach out. There's tons of people working on this right now, um, myself included. All the messages that we get to the page, um, I don't always respond to the white people asking me to educate them, um, but I do respond to First Nations on there, you know, requesting information who want to learn more. Um, and there's lots of other people who, you know, are, are engaged in this as well. Um, yeah, well, oh, I've done our postcard campaign too. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for that because uh, so white people who are offended, the reason why is because this information actually has been available to you and it is not our job to fight you and educate you. You want to pay me? I will happily educate you. You need to understand land acknowledgement? You can go to my website. But you know, like we are surviving genocide. So, you know, I, you better pay me, I better pay her a lot of money to educate you on treaty and information that's been widely available to you for generations but not to our generation, by the way. And if you're native, like I always do everything for free because obviously that that's my cousin, my, my family. Um, and if you're Blackfoot, obviously I owe you as, you know, I'm on your land. So um, you and your team, Latasha, are welcome on my show anytime to talk about it, whether it's 10 minutes, whether it's an hour, whether it's something new, whether it's developing, like, at any time you guys are welcome on my show and we'll put it out there in the hopes that maybe it reaches one more person that isn't already following you and following your work and and um, i'm trying to amplify your voice i don't know how it is why algorithms work the way they do but sometimes they really silence us so i'm just going to throw this out there for folks who are listening the more you amplify non-indigenous voices the more uh, sideline our voices get so if, if you are you know amplifying core blunt please amplify 10 indigenous people to help counter the algorithms of social media anything else you'd like to add latasha uh 
No, I don't think so. Like I said, we'll be happy to be back. I know um, it's, I, I can't thank you enough, Michelle. Um, it's great to speak to, like I said, somebody who who understands the complexities of it, who, you know, understands that we're not here to undermine First Nations governments. We are, we are here to protect the land and water for all people, not just for First Nations, right? Like, like I said, we're upholding our, our responsibilities and treaty by protecting this land and water for everybody. We're gonna flip that on you now because hey, it's never too late to start honoring those treaties. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And I think I have a role and a responsibility being in the Liberal Party federally and provincially to be looking into, um, you know, the FIPA and um, there's a history there that I know my my history people, um, like I'm thinking Harry Saunders and such, like they do work on history. And, um, you know, something that's been really misconstrued here in Alberta is that intergenerational hate with the Trudeaus. And a lot of this stems from the energy policy that uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau worked with uh, Pierre Lougheed at the exact time we were talking about this coal, um, you know, policy that came out of there. So from the federal liberals, that aren't in Alberta, you know, there's this conversation about environmentalism and teamwork. And yet you even go to the Glembo and the way they framed the conversation, it was like, oh, Trudeau was imposing this and imposing that. And it's like, no, this was something that him and Peter Lougheed were working together on. And if Peter Lougheed was forward thinking enough to put forward a coal policy like this, like there's a bigger picture that people are being lost, but their hate for, you know, um, uh, liberals has really clouded them from being able to see a bigger picture here. So for me, you know, I'm going to have to go back into that history of uh, Peter Lougheed, the coal policy, the energy policy, and reopen that without that Western lens hate and try to see how we can make that work when like we as First Nations have a reason to be angry at Pierre Elliott Trudeau for the white paper. But our people, the, the good news that came out of that was a red paper, right? And, and um, you know, a lot of folks are saying, oh, this new Trudeau is like the old Trudeau and he wants to do a white paper with the new and take away our inherent rights. And, uh, you know, so, and there's a lot of like, I don't know, I would say misinformation about that. But again, legalese that it's like, if you're already an oppressed group of people, you can't consent. Like that's just normal legalese, except in Canada when it comes to the Indian Act and settlers, it just never makes sense to me how it is that Canada has gotten away with the oppression of Indigenous people. But um, anyway, I am going to say my the ending of my podcast that I say in all of my podcasts, but um, you as my guest, I always invite you to come and, um, you know, expand on anything that I say, because uh, your perspective is what my listeners need to hear, right? Not just me talking. I annoy myself, frankly. Uh, <laughs> I'm proud this podcast has given solutions and included cultural uh, safety training or cultural first aid and all of them to create a safer space for Indigenous people of color, those with a disability and LGBTQ2 plus to speak. I want to say thank you to uh, Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch and Alicia Fridkin for here to help.bc.ca visions Indigenous people, uh, what is cultural safety and why I should care about it as a resource for people that yeah, I get this a lot. Oh my God, I've tried so hard to get Indigenous at the table, but we can't. And I'm like, well, what have you done for Indigenous inclusion and Indigenous cultural safety? And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, here's a resource for you. Uh, their work are cultural actions tools that I have said hundreds of times in my podcast. So please 
support Indigenous work like that as part of your reconciliation work and settler understandings. I'm just lucky enough to repeat it and highlight it here. Internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous uh, face thanks to the structure of racism imposed on these lands like the Indian Act. And you heard uh, both, uh, both of us talk about this quite a bit today actually and how they want us to divide. That's what lateral violence is. It's a lot easier for settlers for us to be attacking chief and council than it is the Canadian state for what they're doing to our people. Um, RacialEquityTools.org has some really great uh, information about internalized racism. So if you're an Indigenous person and you're hearing me talk about this and you're like, well, no, accountability. I'm like, yep, that matters, but we have to unpack what lateral violence and internalized racism is and how that literally stems from the policies that Canada has imposed on us. Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded, no more, honor our words, honor the treaties, listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. They don't recognize treaty, marginalize people in their budget with gender equity plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs, services, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, um, drug prevention programs, know that your part, your vote to that party is directly negatively impacting people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to actions, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our, pure, our people are experiencing extreme racism in the justice, educational, and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Sidebar, James Makokis, um, Dr. James Makokis spoke so well. There's a video online. I've shared it on my Twitter and on my Facebook. I encourage you to watch it. Dr. James Makokis, he directly um, is talking about healthcare issues and racism in healthcare. Please go watch that. Um, demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, they literally have zero business running. Should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs. Great article I talked about in episode 62 was Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. If you're exposed, uh, experiencing any emotional distress after hearing anything we talk about and want to talk, Call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. Toll free, open 24 hours a day. You can also text at hopeforwellness.ca. If related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, call 1-844-413-6649. This is 24 hours a day. Uh, the QT Vimpoc community here in Mokinstis or in, uh, you know, YYC is the airport code. They created a um, BIPOC mental health uh, YYC WordPress document, and I have shared that before. Non-Indigenous, there are distress lines in your area, and usually a functioning 211, or you can call toll-free 1-833-456-4566. Uh, Violences are everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us their ignorance. Um, usually people who know nothing about 
indigenous colonialism, the constant surveillance of our people, our protests, our vigil, and our rights, typical microaggressions, uh, people dealing with internalized racism, people who are gatekeepers and survive off the status quo. And then there are people who are in their trauma, the opioid uh, pandemic that we're experiencing right now as well. So, you know, internal external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny and my mom of what strength looks like through your example. I'm going to add my aunties in that too, because they've been a huge part of that. My aunties and uncles, they've taught me uh, so many things about our people and our ways, and I'm really grateful for that. I want to say thank you to my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her. I'm a second generation proud Calgarian. I want to say thank you to Darcy for producing and editing the show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, and the father of our child, he has supported me on my journey down the red road and has witnessed decades of racism and sexism, and he's unpacking his as well. To our child, who we are blessed to learn from daily, we are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they will understand. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. I have a YouTube channel where you can subscribe if you're more into podcasting that way. It's a new thing for me ever since the pandemic. Uh, go to nativecalgary.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. And I want to end with a side eye to my to the Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not your dish. My beautiful cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. <laughs> Thanks for listening.